0: good morning everybody it's good to see more and more faces out there i said before sam and i were just getting kind of tired of looking at each other all the time so it's great to have all of you here and congratulations to the graduates uh great to have you here too i tell you one of the hardest things is being like 17 years old and trying to figure out what am i going to do with the rest of my life i mean who who came up with that idea you know um but great to see everybody here and again take a moment today and uh Since we're about to celebrate Memorial Day, I think it's a great idea for all of us to just pause and thank God for those men and women who laid down their lives so that we could be sitting here this morning, not necessarily in the condition we would prefer, but that we can even be here doing what we're doing. So um, how would you like to have a shoe thrown at your head? I'm guessing all of you would say no. But you may recall a few years ago, uh, President Bush at the time was at a press conference. And a man came up, stood up rather, and he took one shoe off. He yelled something. He threw it at the president's head. He dodged it. It was a pretty good move. If you've not seen the video, you should check it out. And then he took off his second shoe and he threw it at the president's head again. He dodged that one. And before he knew it, he had an entire security detail that jumped on top of him. He ended up with a broken arm. He spent three years in prison for pulling that little stunt. You see, you just can't go up to a head of state like that and think you can just do whatever you want to do. And not only are these people protected, but their vehicles are protected. I remember whenever I was working for the Navy, I did some work on uh, the presidential helicopter. I actually was getting on board and running some test equipment. But what no one told me that day was that I was going to be escorted all day that I was there by an 18-year-old with a shotgun over his shoulder, <laughs> even to the bathroom. I, this guy was with me wherever I went. Now, why is that? You see, we do not approach these people, these heads of state, on our own terms. Those terms are dictated for us And they have protocols, and they have lots of security, and they're kept behind lots of walls and things that are bulletproof because there are bad people in the world that would do bad things if they had the opportunity. Now think about this just for a moment. If there was no sin in the world, if there weren't people prepared to do those bad things, then all of these measures would not be necessary. But because there's sin in the world, these measures are absolutely necessary. And that sin changed the relationship that we have with those leaders. And it changed the relationship that we have with God. You know, there was a time when God walked face to face with mankind. There was no distance there. There was no space that was needed. God walked and had face-to-face conversations with Adam and Eve until sin came into the world. And when sin came into the world, it separated man and God. So the approach to God after the fall in the garden became completely different than it was before. Now what I want to talk about this morning is that question, how then do I approach a holy God? How do I approach a God with the sin distance that has been placed there? The passage I want to look at today comes from Hebrews chapter 9. We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 through 10. And if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 through 10. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, And Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak, cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. until the time of reformation you may be seated so we're back in the book of Hebrews and we're progressing through this book that was written to encourage people to not stop believing to continue on in the faith and the author of Hebrews is making strong arguments from the Old Testament And last week we saw that there were two covenants. There was an Old Testament covenant that was rendered obsolete by a new covenant, a new agreement between God and man, a new arrangement, a new way to approach God, a different way of doing things, a totally different way of doing things. that required a shift in the mindset of the recipients of that letter from the author of Hebrews. And this morning we're seeing all of these different regulations ceremony and I know some of you are reading that hearing that maybe thinking what in the world are we going to do with this this morning all of those things that detail these old testament practices that were necessary because of a new way or rather an old way of approaching God so this morning I want to look at this text like this and answer that question We'll take a moment and look at that Old Covenant worship that was described. As a matter of fact, you heard the author say it. He didn't want to go into detail about it right now. And then we'll talk about what does this Old Covenant worship teach us? I believe there's actually at least three lessons we can learn from this Old Covenant worship. And then finally we'll talk about, well, how do we then approach a holy God? So let's start out then with this Old Covenant worship described. And you heard in the text... This description of the old style of worship. And the author was describing this thing called the tabernacle. For a long time, the Israelites wandered in the desert. And there's replicas of this that are built in certain places. This is the outside. You see that outer um, cloth fabric that would be taken up and rolled up, and whenever they traveled, they would take it with them. And then there was a, 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 a altar there uh, where burnt sacrifices could be made and there was a laver there where where water was to, to wash yourself and then inside that other part it looked like this you see the little priest dude standing there and then there's a curtain that had this outer place it was called the holy place and only priests could go between those two purple curtains you see And there was a lampstand, and there was a table that had bread on it that was made often. It was presented there for the Sabbath. There was another altar there that had incense that burned on it. But then there was another section called the Most Holy Place. Now, priests could go into that outer part, uh, any priest. But only one priest could go into that innermost part that contained the Ark of the Covenant that was covered in gold and it was very um, particular. There was only one day of the year that the high priest could go in there and certain sacrifices had to be made before the priest could go in there and there's extra biblical writings that talk about how the priest, when he went in there, had to have ropes tied around his ankles and bells on because if he came in direct sight, if he looked directly onto what was called the mercy seat, the top of the Ark of the Covenant, he would be struck dead and nobody else could go in to get the guy See, he'd have to be pulled out of there by those ropes attached to his ankles. I'd be a little nervous going into that place. But in that most holy place, you were going into the physical presence of God on earth. This is what worship looked like under the old covenant. Covenant. And you've got to wonder what went through the minds of the Israelites at times having to go through this. Um, Now, the Hebrews that were hearing the author talking about this, they would have been like super familiar with it. Uh, That's why he kind of seems to just pause to say, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about this right now, but he lays that all out there for them. And then look what it says at verse five at the end. You know, again, of these things, we cannot speak In detail. Because his main point is to set up this contrast that he's going to be making between the old way of doing things which he is getting to right now but then he'll be talking about the new way of doing things towards the end of chapter nine so he talks about the place but then he moves into the regulations of worship and he said you you had priests and priests alone could freely enter that first area of the tent they had all kinds of duties they were doing in there again presenting the bread and and then it says in verse 7, but into the second only the high priest goes. And he but once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. You see a sacrifice of blood had to be made for those sins that were unintentional, those but I didn't mean to sins. And actually in the Old Testament it details what those sins were like. It could be something like failing to give all the truth if you were in court. Just an incidental sin. But see, even with those unintentional sins, there were consequences. Even the little things we may say that nobody meant to do, there was a penalty that had to be paid. And the high priest took care of this when he would go into that most holy place. And again, he was the only one that could do it. Now, why is the writer going into all of this? Why is it so important that he lay that groundwork, making this brief description of Old Testament worship? He's doing this because he wants to show the weakness of it, that it was incomplete. And if we go back to verse 1, look at how he describes this place. He says, now even the first covenant had regulations, for worship had an earthly place of holiness. So that's important. Because that actually has a negative connotation to it. It was an earthly place of worship. Heaven came down and touched the earth in this one spot, but it was still limited. He's saying it was earthly. And then in verses 8 through 10, there was this continued list of things that were inferior about this way of doing things. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. That is to say that the Holy Spirit had limited access to the holy place. The average person could not even get into the building. Only priests could get into the front part. Only one priest could get into the the most holy part. So there's very limited access. Then it continues in verses 9 and 10 which is symbolic for the present age, that all of that was symbolic of something better that was to come. They were just symbols, and not only that, but the old system was inadequate to meet our very deepest needs. We could never have a deep and intimate relationship with God under that that old system of doing things. And both we and God desired that intimacy. This was all just to symbolize something better that was to come along. I do believe this old system, though, has at least three lessons that we can learn from it. Three things we can learn about God from this. Um, one is that God desires us to approach Him, He desires this, He wants that relationship with us. As a matter of fact, uh, the, after the fall in Genesis in those first few chapters, the rest of the Bible is about the restoration of the relationship between God and man. So he desires that. He took time to show his people how they would gain access to him. And then secondly, we see how that, that God details how to approach him. There's a lot of details to this. If you read through, I was talking to a guy last week that said he was reading through the book of Leviticus. It's like, God bless you. It is repeated law. And then the book of Deuteronomy, that, that name, Deuteronomy, means the second giving of the law. They're very long and detailed looks about what it took to conduct worship and to do life under this old covenant, this old agreement between God and man. Uh, excruciating it, this, those items we looked at, the tabernacle itself, if you look in the Old Testament, had excruciatingly detailed plans on how to build each and everything. The Ark of the Covenant had detailed plans on the the dimensions and what it was to look like. It was excruciatingly detailed. And why is that? It's because this is what it was going to take to get back into that relationship with God. So why all the pomp and the circumstance, these robes and rituals that leads to the third thing? God's perfection demands detailed procedure. God's perfection demands this detailed procedure. Now, remember, none of this would have been necessary had sin not entered the world. Had sin not entered the world, we would still have this relationship with God where he's walking here on earth right alongside the rest of us. but we see what our sin had done. But God still wants us to come to him. And and now we have this 24 hour a day access to him that no doubt these Hebrews who received this letter were having a lot of trouble understanding. Almost as if to say, it just can't be this easy. There's gotta be more to this. This would have been foreign to them. As a matter of fact, just take, take into account for a moment, the uniqueness of God himself. God's name, Yahweh, it's Hebrew, means I am. He's essentially a God who needs no name. And why is that? Well, because there's there's only one God. When you only have one of something, you frankly don't need a name for him. If there's only one person on earth, a name wouldn't be necessary. That speaks to his uniqueness, But God's uniqueness also limits how we can approach him. Do you think if the Israelites could have just chosen how they were going to approach God that they would have chosen this? I doubt it. Because it's so limited things. Limited things. But this is what his perfection demands. So when we show up on a Sunday, are we taking into account the holiness of God? Are we taking into account that sin separation that Christ overcame? And then how do we approach our holy God? How do we go about doing this? And first of all, I want to suggest, um, and these are as much attitudes as, as anything else, but first of all, that we approach him like a found child. We approach him like a found child. I came across a story of a guy by the name of Carter Marks. And Carter Marx's mother was walking him in a stroller. This was in Hawaii. And through a whole series of strange events that transpired, she ended up in a mental institution that day, and he went into protective custody. And for years, uh, he he had no idea who his family was, and he never really questioned um, why he was raised in an orphanage or anything like that. And and he had a half-sister, who decided she wanted to pursue her brother. So she went to the police. They came up with an artist's rendering of what he would look like given the age. And he actually went online and was able to recognize himself. This is a true story. He recognized who he was, went missing on 1977, but then was found. And he was thrilled to finally, obviously, get to meet with his half-sister. And he said, if she hadn't pursued me, this would still be a cold case. I would never have known who my family was. You see, we were all missing children. And God came and he found us. And we can enjoy this relationship with him because of what he did for us. So that's one of the attitudes that we need to have when we're approaching God, that we are found children. And then secondly, that we approach with confidence. We approach God with confidence. And we actually saw this back in chapter 4. Hebrews said to approach the throne of grace with confidence. And, you know, I thoroughly believe, I've thrown this out there several times, no theologian has smacked me down for saying this, so I'm going to say it again. Uh, If we could get into a time machine, and we could go back into the Old Testament to this time of the tabernacle, I believe that anyone who's been washed in the blood of christ could walk into that holy place i believe that to be the case we're living in this different agreement so we can approach this throne with confidence unlike anybody that was able to before but see frankly we're not really wired to do this because i believe we still struggle from time to time with whether or not we are truly forgiven for everything we've done I love this quote. This is from Matt Chandler. He said, The litmus test of whether or not you understand the gospel is what you do when you fail. Do you run from God and go try to clean yourself up a bit before you come back into the throne room? Or do you approach the throne of grace with confidence? If you don't approach the throne of grace with confidence, you don't understand the gospel. You are most offensive to God When you come to him with all of your efforts, when you're still trying to earn what's freely given. I mean, it's one thing to hear it. It's one thing to let this go into the ears. It's hard to get it down here. Man, I've struggled with self-righteousness for a long time. I still struggle a bit with this idea that, you know, not one thing I do is going to make God love me any more than he already does. He showed his love for us when Christ died on the cross. If you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, if you've got any doubts at all as to whether or not you're in right standing with God, come meet me down here, please, at the end of the service. I'll put my mask back on. I'd love to talk to you about how you can enjoy this relationship with God that we're talking about. There's another guy by the name of Brendan Manning Uh, I'm sorry, Brennan Manning, he he became a, a minister, but he lived a really debaucherous kind of a lifestyle for a long time. And he once said that my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ, and I have done nothing to earn or deserve it. So we approach God with this confidence based on what Jesus has done for us, nothing that we've done. And then finally, we approach God with what I'm going to call a rhythmic holiness, a rhythmic holiness. Now, what do I mean by that? You know, a term holiness is not one that we throw around a lot. I was talking to Melissa yesterday, and I said, if I were to tell you that so-and-so was holy, what would you think of that person? And she said, well, first of all, how do we know that they're holy? Which is a good point. But it's just not really an adjective that you want to stick on somebody. And, and I think that there's, frankly, we talk about holiness, there's a lot of negative ideas that pop into your mind. It's like, well, this person's probably not too much fun, you know, if they're holy. It's just a long list of things that they don't do, right? Well, they're not drinking too much. They're not getting drunk. They're not having sex. They're, they're not, it's this and that and this that that they're, they're not doing. Uh, and, and I don't think I've ever referred to somebody as holy. And there's also this repetitive nature to it. Holiness also sort of speaks of something you do again and again and again and again and again. Something you're not doing again and again. Something you are doing again and again and again. So it sort of has this repetitive monotony to it. And if you look at what it took to approach God of the Old Testament, it's the same thing again and again and again and again and again. Slaughtering animals again and again. The priest's going into the holy place again and again, year after year, for a long, long time, millennium. And the natural natural reaction is to say, this is monotonous. However, monotony is not necessarily a sign of a lack of vitality for life. You see, you can just watch my son, and you can see this. He recently, I've been... Setting in a chair, reading to him, and then he at some point likes to go and treat my leg like it's a trapeze. He does a flip over it. And if I pull my foot back, he says, no, more, Daddy. More, Daddy. Or we'll do this thing where he sort of climbs up me and does a backflip. And he never says, I get tired of this before he does. So there are rhythms that are life-giving if they're the right rhythms. And I think this quote from one commentator says it very well the turn of the seasons the beating of a heart the revolutions of the earth the year to year march through decades of a committed marriage all are signs of life that can never be labeled dull god seems to like rhythms and we must join him in the rhythm of holiness drawing near living in a monotonous submission to his will jesus reflected perfectly this type of holiness a wholeness of life centered on the perfect and beautiful will of God. See, that's what I'm talking about, about this rhythmic holiness. You know, coming to church, by the way, I saw a very interesting statistic uh, last week that about a third of people who came regularly before this virus started are describing themselves as either not knowing if or when they'll ever step foot back into an auditorium. There's a hesitancy to step back into that Rhythm of holiness. But yet, that's exactly what we're called to do. And yes, we do have to be proactive and we're thinking about what we're singing and we're thinking about the text. It's very easy to just sort of, you know, check it off. Well, I got that done for today. That's not the monotony that God is giving us. That's a monotony that's in us. That's not outside of us. So, live with that rhythmic holiness. Don't grow weary in doing good. and putting this all together, approach God with confidence and a rhythmic holiness. Approach God with this confidence and this rhythmic holiness. And, and, and this world that we're in right now, you know, it's a prelude for what's to come. There's things that we legitimately love and enjoy, and there's times on earth when we may even say to ourselves, maybe it's the best Christmas dinner you've ever had with your family. Maybe it's the best holiday. Maybe you're in the middle of doing whatever it is that you really, really love. And There's this thought that you have in your mind, man, I wish this would not end. I want to leave you this from J.I. Packer. He said, hearts on earth say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this ever to end. But it invariably does. The hearts in heaven say, I want this to go on forever, and it will. There can be no better news than this. Let's pray together. Almighty God, what a joy and pleasure it is to live in the rhythms of holiness that you have given us. God, you create day after day. The universe and the earth continue only because you have willed it to be so. Lord, you put your breath in our lungs and we sing praises to you. Bless us this day. Let us see beyond the monotony as we have perceived it and see you, seek you, find you. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.